The following audio is from Grace Fellowship of Westerville. To learn more about our church, please visit our website at www.gracefcwesterville.org. Luke chapter 2, and while you're looking there, who starts a Christmas message with a Greek grammar lesson? Especially when the preacher is not too good in English. Uh, People still make fun of my spelling. So, uh, you know, it's always been a thing for me. But the reality is that we have a grammar lesson in our text this morning that is absolutely critical to the salvation message. And while many Christians understand this, I think it's important for us to be reminded, and particularly if you're here this morning and you have never had a relationship with Christ, it's important to know this. In fact, the heart of the angel's message to the shepherds about the birth of Jesus depends on it. The shepherds were afraid when the angel came, and I'm sure they were petrified when the host of angels came. And so the angel told them in Luke chapter 2, verse 10 and 11, the angel said to them, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Now the point of grammar I want to make is in the last two words of verse 11. Christ and Lord. Christ and Lord are both in what we call the nominative case, which means that they are equated, which is another way of saying that they are one and the same or the equivalent of each other. Now, the reason this is important and so wonderful is that we might expect the angel to use Lord, but we probably would expect him to have said, today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Lord's Christ or Messiah. And I say this statement might have been expected because the Jews were looking for a Messiah. They fully expected God to send a Messiah. The difference is they were expecting a human, a man. And what's fascinating here is that when the angel announced his birth by a subtle change from the genitive to the nominative case, the angel proclaimed the newborn child not only to be the Lord's anointed, but to be the anointed one who is the Lord. In other words, the statement is not only of his function, but of his nature. The reality is, he is not just a man, he is God. And the Jews were looking for a Messiah. They were looking for a political leader, one who could defeat their enemies and set up the rule and reign. They were looking for another David type. They didn't expect God to come himself. So from this grammar lesson, we need to see that Jesus is Lord and Savior. And I emphasize this because the words Jesus is Lord were the earliest Christian creeds and therefore of the greatest possible importance to the early church. From the earliest days, it was recognized that if someone declared Jesus is Lord, he or she was to be received in for baptism. And the reason was because of 1 Corinthians 12, 3, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. So they recognized if someone confessed that, they knew the Spirit of God had worked in and through their hearts. 
And because on the other hand, Romans 10.9 says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So to us who read these records at a later date, it seems strange that Jesus is Lord could be so important to our spiritual predecessors. But the reason is because these, these words overflow with so much meaning. To say that Jesus is Lord implies two things. First, it implies Jesus is God, which was the point of the angel's announcement. And second, it implies that Jesus is Savior. The first of these implications is due to the fact that in the Greek version of the Old Testament, the Septuagint, which was a well-known to the Jews community of first century uh, believers, and uh, the New Testament writers quoted from it. And the word for Lord, kairos, is used to translate the great Hebrew name for God, Yahweh or Jehovah. And this is why in most of our English Bibles today, we have the word Lord in place of Yahweh. So we need to be careful, though, at this point, because the word used Lord in the New Testament is not only used uh, to imply divinity. Lord was a bit like our word sir. Uh, on most common levels, someone might greet someone out of respect, calling them Lord. In fact, that's why, according to the Gospels, apparent unbelievers sometimes called Jesus Lord. Uh, this does not mean that they had some sudden revelation of, of who Jesus was, but they were only treating him with the respect a distinguished rabbi should get. They were being polite. However, in most, uh, uh, most exalted instances in the New Testament, as in Thomas's confession, my Lord and my God, in John 20, 28, the word was linked to the disciples' belief that Jesus Christ was God, the Lord himself. And this is the meaning of kairos in the great passages of the New Testament. Let me just give you a couple of examples uh, that we can think of in the Bible. 1 Corinthians 8, 4 through 6. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence, and that there is no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed many are gods and many are lords, a small l, small g, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for, for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through what we exist. So the background for this passage is the polytheism of the Greek belief. When Paul went to Athens, there were statues and monuments to every god they can think of, and just on the chance that they forgot one, they had one to the unknown god. And so what Paul is saying it clearly here is he's arguing that there is one God who is one with Jesus. This is the meaning of verse 6 when it talked about one Lord, Jesus Christ. On one occasion, recorded in Matthew 22, Jesus asked his enemies who they thought Christ to be. And they replied, the son of David. And this was true so far as it went. But they were thinking again of an earthly human Messiah, and Jesus wanted to press them farther. And so he quotes Psalm 110, verse 1, in the Matthew 22, verse 43 through 45. He said to them, 
How is it then that David in the spirit calls him Lord, saying, quote, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. End of quote. If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? And then Peter had this text in mind when he was addressing the Sanhedrin. Acts 5.31, God exalted him at his right hand as a leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. Then Paul was thinking of these words when he wrote in Colossians 3.1, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. So this whole emphasis about Lord being Lord is not only Savior, but Lord of our lives. In other words, we seek those things that come from our Lord. We seek to have his mind and to fulfill his call for us. But probably the clearest text is found in Philippians 2, verses 5 through 11. He said, Have this mind in you or among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. And so clearly he is saying here, those of you who have come to Christ, those of you who have accepted him as Savior, let his mind be your mind. Let the things of Christ penetrate your hearts. Look to him as your example of how to live. And if you are truly born again, have the mind of Christ. And in so doing, we learn to die to self and allow the Spirit to live through us. And this is the lordship of Jesus Christ. This is literally allowing him to take over. So what is the name that is above every name? Well, it's not just Jesus himself, but it is Lord, which is the highest name. It's the name of God, and that's above every other name. We also see Lord and Savior. The second implication to this title, Lord is that Jesus Christ, as Lord, is also the Savior. John Stott, Stott writes, quote, The title Lord is a symbol of Christ's victory over the forces of evil. If Jesus had been exalted over all the principalities and powers of evil, as indeed he has, this is the reason why he has been called Lord. If Jesus has been proclaimed Lord, as he has, it's because these powers are under his feet. He has conquered them on the cross, and therefore our salvation, that is to say, our rescue from sin, Satan, fear, and death, is due to that victory, end of quote. So if the title Lord is a symbol of Christ's victory over evil, over fear, over death, what more can that say about your life and mine? You know, I think we often forget the reality of this. 
we know Jesus Christ died for our sins. And we accept him as Savior. We, we take to ourselves the free gift that he has given us. And we know that we have an assurance of salvation and one day we'll be with him in heaven. But do you really stop and think that the literal power that Christ talks about is yours now? You and I need to meditate on the reality that we have been free from sin, Satan, fear, and death. You and I can stand this morning secure in the reality that if he is our Lord and we allow his mind to penetrate us and allow the spirit to take over, that all those things, the victory over sin, Satan, fear, and death, they're ours. Oh, we'll die physically if the Lord tarries, but our spirit never dies. And to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. We can't lose. You simply can't lose. So the, the, push and the push and the thrust here is to allow the reality of what Christ has done to be your reality now. To allow his power to free you from fear and death. Now, let's make this personal. What does Lord of my life mean? When the angel proclaimed to those shepherds, he is Christ the Lord. What does it mean to have Christ Lord of your life? You know, in recent years, it has become customary in some parts of the evangelical world to distinguish between lordship and saviorhood in such a way that one is supposed to be able to be saved without Christ being Lord. Now, I want to be very careful here, and I want to be crystal clear because I'm not heading into legalism here, okay? Are there Christians, true born-again Christians, who aren't living for Christ? Absolutely. Are there Christians who have succumbed to the world's difficulties, and when you look at them, <clears throat> you would think they weren't even Christians? Absolutely. But it's important for us to understand what true faith is. One part of it involves the meaning of faith itself. Is faith minus commitment true faith? Well, biblical faith involves three elements. One, it involves knowledge upon which faith is based. And we'll see more about this as we go on. Number two, it's a heart response, which results from the new birth. And three, it is commitment without which faith is no different from the ascent of the demons who only believe and shudder, James 2.19. So commitment or works don't save anyone. Let me make that very clear. You cannot earn your salvation. It is a free gift, not of works, lest any man should boast. All of salvation from the beginning, conviction, drawing us and saving us is all the work of God. That's important for us to understand. But true faith produces commitments and works. Now to see this more clearly, I want you to go with me to Hebrews chapter 11. You're familiar with Hebrews 11. It's that great hall of faith. And he gives us a clear instruction at the beginning of what faith is. And then he gives us some examples. So he begins, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, 
the conviction of things not seen. For by it the prophets of old received their, their accommodation. By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things which are visible. So what the writer of Hebrews is saying here, you and I weren't around when God created the heavens and earth. And we don't know anybody who was. All we have are the scriptures that God has given us to tell us what has happened. So clearly, it is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things we haven't seen. Our faith is a result of the Spirit working in us, giving us understanding to believe. One great example of this is, is later on in Hebrews 11, verse 27, talking about Moses. He said, by faith, he left Egypt, not being afraid of the, of the uh, danger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. So that's what faith is. Faith is not some blind faith in hoping and hoping things will turn out. Faith is a reality in the proof of the word of God. And that's what this, this passage is. So verse 4 says, By faith Abel offered a, to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous. God commending him by accepting his gift, and through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. So then the writer goes on uh, to continue to record the great commitment and works of the saints, who as a result of saving faith committed their lives to God. And he gives us that whole record of all these individuals. And their justification became public. So what we see here is men who put their faith in God, and as a result, their lives were an outward manifestation of an inward change. And it's all been recorded for you and I to see what happens in a truly sanctified life. Now, Go with me to Hebrews chapter 12, the next chapter, because we'll, we'll see a little more clearly here what, what is being said. Hebrews chapter 12, he begins, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. Now, who are the witnesses? Well, they were all just recorded in chapter 11. These are the people who've been there, done that. Okay, And they have been glorified by putting their names into chapter 11, and they are the clouds of witnesses. People living godly examples before you today, maybe the person sitting next to you in the pew or behind you, they are our witnesses. Okay, So he says, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Now that's significant right there because what the writer is saying, since God in his mercy and grace recorded all these examples and since you and I have this volume of 66 books where we can read and learn from the godly examples he's given us. Based on all of that, let's you and I lay aside every weight and the sin that so clings to us. So 
the writer of Hebrews is saying, look, I know it's tough for you, okay? Sin is clinging to you. It's hard to get away from, right? I mean, sometimes we sin without thinking, you know? And the writer of Hebrews knows that. But he goes, look, here's the people who had victory. Doesn't mean they're perfect. Doesn't mean they never sinned. Everybody sins. We have a sin nature. We're always going to sin until we see Christ and, and are with him. So because of all of this, you and I need to make a very focused reality that if I am truly born again, then my life needs to be like those in Hebrews 11. My life needs to be like those people around me I know who just seem so dedicated to Christ. I need to lay aside everything that's holding me down and, notice, run with endurance the race set before us. Now, you know what I believe that says? Our lives have been laid out before us. The joys, the difficulties, the successes, the failures. Things come into our life. We have no control, right? So the fact that we know those lives are laid out before us and we don't know what tomorrow brings, we have to run with endurance. We have to stay strong in the lordship of Christ and allow him to live through us because it's been set before us for a purpose. God has designed your life to work through you and only you. He has a path for your life that he in his sovereignty is working through. Sometimes it stinks. I mean, let's be honest, right? We wouldn't choose half the things that come into our life, but God knows them, and he's allowed them. When he's Lord of your life, and you know he's working step by step, that's the peace that passes all understanding. That's the ability to step back and say, not my will, but yours be done, and know full well that that outcome will be perfect according to his plan. So it's set before us. Looking, now here's the key, okay? I'm not just going to leave you there, humans, because I know you're weak. So here's what you do. You look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of your faith, who for the joy that was set before him... Oh, let me just stop there. Jesus Christ is our example, right? Look to him, follow his life. For the joy that was set before him. Well, if he's our example, guess what? Joy comes in the morning. Your joy is coming. This is a very difficult time of the year. You know, psychologists say that December is the largest month for suicides. People are depressed. The world is going by them, having fun, celebrating. Some are lonely. Some are defeated. It's tough. It's hard. It's difficult for some people. But joy comes in the morning. And the joy that you and I have, the joy that we can cling, just like the example set before us in Jesus Christ, our joy is coming. We haven't seen anything yet. 
So no matter what your path of endurance is, no matter what's been laid out before you to endure, you can know beyond a shadow of a doubt that if your relationship is with Christ, your joy has yet to come. And Jesus Christ is that great example. Who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary and faint-hearted. In other words, hang in there. He's with you. And then uh, the writer goes on and he talks about being disciplined, how a father disciplines a child, and he goes through that. But skip down to verse 12 with me. Therefore, lift up your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees, and make straight paths for your feet, so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. In other words, get on board and stop fighting it. Let him be God in you. Let Christ be seen in you. And that's what Hebrews 11 is all about. Men and women who allowed God to be seen through them. And because of that, their names are written in a book for all the world to see for generations and generations and generations and generations. Don't make the mistake of treating your faith lightly. Don't avoid commitment to God and his path for you because it is the life the greatest life you can ever enjoy. The second mistake is is even more serious because it involves the person and work of Jesus Christ. Who is this one who has saved us from our sins? Well, he is, as Paul has said it, Jesus Christ, our Lord. No true Christian will add anything to the finished work of Jesus. To do that is to proclaim a false gospel. So all all true works, all true commitment are the result of salvation and not the means of salvation. But I don't want to just leave it there. When we come to the book of James, some people here believe that there is an apparent controversy between Paul and James. Paul's great argument is that not by seeking to fulfill God's requirement do we make ourselves just before God, but by acknowledging our sin and accepting his salvation as a free gift. James' argument is that the very faith which saves us is a faith which brings forth fruits, or it's not true faith at all. Works spring out of salvation because God's favor has been freely and graciously bestowed. So let's grab this reality for a few minutes. Let's go to James chapter 2, and let's tie this together with where we are. James chapter 2, I want you to begin in verse 14. He says, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? 
If a brother or a sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things they needed for the body, what good is that? So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, well, you have faith and I have works. Then show me your faith apart from your works. In other words, if you're truly saved... How do you prove it? How do people know that you're saved if you do nothing? So here's where the argument is beginning to, to come together. Verse 14, or excuse me, uh, verse, yeah, verse 18. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one. You do, you do well. But even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith is completed by the works. So here's what we need to understand about faith. Faith is a verb. It shows action. Therefore, the works we do for God justify the inward faith that we claim to have. So James is not saying that if you don't do anything, you're not saved. What he's saying is the faith that you project is dead. It's of no value. Verse 21, And the scripture was fulfilled that said, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way, was not Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? So faith is more than a mere profession. Faith has, as as simply a profession is a mockery. That's why he brings up verse 15 and 16. If you have a brother or sister and they're naked and you have clothes and you just say, hey, go on, take care, you you have no faith to show for it. So there is something important here. And I think the most serious problem that these verses pose is the question of what James 2.24 means. You see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. Some imagine that this contradicts Paul's statement in Romans 2.28, for we maintain that the man is justified by faith apart from works uh, of the law. And I think John Calvin probably nailed this as well as anybody. And let me just read a quote from John Calvin. He says, It appears certain that James is speaking of the manifestation, not of the imputation of righteousness, as if he as if he had said, those who are justified by faith prove their justification by obedience and good works, not by a bare and imaginary semblance of faith. In one word, he is not discussing the mode of justification, but requiring that the justification of all believers shall be operative. In other words, be put to action. And as Paul contends that men are justified without the aid of works, So James will not allow any to be regarded as justified who are destitute of good works. 
Let them twist the words of James as they may, they will never extract out of them more than two propositions. That, the, that an empty phantom of faith does not justify, and that the believer, not contented with such an imagination, manifest his justification by good works. So in other words, he is saying, as we've been saying all along, works don't save you, but they're the fruit of salvation. And when we talk about the lordship of Christ, when we talk about him being real in our lives, we are saying that he who has saved me miraculously, I owe him my life. I owe him to lay my life down before him and let him do with it whatever he chooses to do. And that's what Hebrews chapter 11 is about, those who laid their lives down. So James is not at odds with Paul. They're not antagonists facing uh, each other at a crossroads. They stand back to back confronting different foes of the gospel. So this is the key part that I want you to see this morning. James and Paul echo Jesus' preaching. Paul's emphasis is an echo of Matthew 5.3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. James' teaching has the ring of Matthew 7.21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. So Paul represents the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. James represents the last part of it. Paul declares that we are saved by faith without the deeds of the law. James declares that we are saved by faith, which shows itself in what we do and how we live. So the key here that I think we need to understand, and the key that the angel was sharing at that time with the shepherds, is that Jesus is God. Jesus is is Lord. So when you come to Christ and give him your life, are you giving him all your life? Is he in control of everything? So a good rule to set up deep down inside is this. Whatever saves us must change us. And therefore, the faith must be not mere profession, but vital principle. True faith is trust. What we believe, we live by. So then true works are an evidence to all, the true, all of the true faith from which alone they can spring. But it's also true of the flip side. A lack of works may show a lack of faith. Now, let me try to bring this to a key point. And if you remember nothing else this morning... Let this summarize where we're going. I want to summarize this point with a profound thought that should end any argument about faith and works, okay? And I want to take you to a familiar verse that we go back to frequently, Galatians 2.20. And Paul is saying here, I have been crucified with Christ. What he is saying is that when Jesus Christ died on the cross, he died with him. And when Christ was raised from the grave, Paul rose with him. So the reality is, when Christ defeated the grave, he defeated it for all of us who have come to him 
and placed our faith in him. He says, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Now, just think about that for a minute. Paul is saying that the Paul you see now, it's not me. It's Christ. The reality that I am living before you now is the reality that Christ is living in me. Isn't it why we always talk about he must increase and we must decrease? Because when you take Christ as your Savior, the Holy Spirit comes into you. God knows we're messy. He knows we're weak. So he didn't just save us and leave us. He gave us his Spirit to indwell us. And so Paul says, look, I I died with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but it's Christ who lives in me. And because of that, now the life I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. My faith is no longer in me. It's in Christ. I know apart from Christ, I'm a failure. I don't have the ability to stand up against difficult things. When the trials come to my life, they just sweep me away. But I'm no longer living. Christ is living through me. And it's Christ who gets me through. It's his spirit that points me to his will. So here's a thing I want you to write down. If you're taking notes, please write this down. Because this is the reality of Galatians 2.20. If Christ truly lives within you, He must live and work through you because that's who he is. Who would take Christ as their savior and then not let him live through you? That's the true reality of salvation. I mean, just think about that. God so loved you that he sent his son to die for you. So that if you would believe on him, you would have everlasting life. But then he gives you his spirit. So if you trust him, he'll live through you right now. And if you trust him and commit to him, whatever comes into your life, he will be glorified. That is the ultimate success of being a Christian that he would be glorified. There's no other way to live for the Christian. And so I say this this morning, if you're here as a Christian and your life is just a settled for life, please understand what's there for you. Please understand the power and the glory that he has for you. Before the foundation of the world, your path, your race was set up. And the reason it was set up in God's heart is because he wants to do amazing things through you. Absolutely amazing things through you. Not the preacher. Not the apostles. You. He wants you to enjoy that amazing success. Do you have a true living faith? Is he Lord of your life? Let me close with a practical lordship. Because at this point, it's easy to sit back and to congratulate ourselves on having sound theology. 
Of course, we know that Jesus must be Lord to be Savior. Of course, we know that true faith involves commitment and works. But, as Jesus, but is Jesus really our Lord? Are we really committed to Him? Let me just give you three key things to keep in mind. Number one, if Jesus is Lord, then He must be Lord of our thinking. On one occasion, when the Lord was calling His disciples, He said in Matthew eleven twenty nine, Take my yoke upon you and learn of me. What he is saying is, look, take my yoke on you. You understand that when they used to train oxen to turn the wheels that ground the flour, they'd always put an older oxen on the outside and a younger one inside so he'd get used to walking. Well, the big oxen on the outside took all the load of the grinder. The little one was just walking with them. Jesus is saying, take my yoke upon you. Let me carry your burden." Let me carry your life. Take this upon you and learn from me. Take the word of God. We take the scriptures and learn of him so that our minds can be changed to be his mind. Our thinking becomes his thinking and therefore produces a life of commitment to his way completely. So when you allow the Holy Spirit to take over, the Holy Spirit will always produce the mind of Christ. You can write that down. He will always produce the mind of Christ. Number two, if Jesus is Lord, then he must be Lord of our wills and our morals. Discipleship implies obedience. Are we committed to his morals and do we commit our wills to him? In Luke chapter 6, verse 46, he says, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? And then he goes on to explain in verse 47. Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, I will show you what he is like. He's like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on rock. And when the floods arose and the streams broke against the house and could not shake it because it had been well built. Literally, the house on a solid foundation withstands the storm and the flood. And isn't that what he's saying to you and I? You want to know how to have victory when those storms of trials come rolling into your life? Then build your faith on the rock of Christ. Let him be Lord of your life. Let him live through you. Let the plan that he has rolled out before you be your strength. Knowing that if it's come into your life, God has allowed it for a greater purpose than you and I can even begin to understand. But the one who hears and does not do them is like a man who built his house on the ground without a foundation. And when the streams broke against it, immediately fell and the ruin of the house was great. You can be a Christian, but if you don't grow your faith, if you're not in the word building it, when the storms come, what do they do? They blow you away. You know why? Because you don't know where to go for strength. All you have is your human reason, your human understanding, and what you've learned on all the years of your life, and that's all you got. 
God says, build your foundation on me and I will get you through every single turn in the road. Everything that life throws at you, I'll get you through. And not only will I get you through, get this now, I'll get you through smiling. Because you can rejoice in knowing that my will is being done and you are bringing glory to me, Christ. And when your head hits the pillow at night, isn't it wonderful to know that the day you just lived, you lived in the power of Christ and that people could see Christ through you? Is there any other way to live for the Christian? We're going to get bombarded in this life. It's a fact of life. Because of the sin nature, it just goes seemingly unchecked. But God knows that. He has authored your yesterday, your today, and your tomorrow. And he is growing you to deal with it in such a way. And number three, and this is a collective thing, if Jesus is Lord, then he must be Lord of the church. When you come each Sunday, you must have confidence that the word and only the word is preached. You must know that when you go to your Sunday school classes, that your teachers are going to keep you in the word of God and they're going to teach the principles of God. You need to know that your leadership are being led by the spirit of God and that every decision has its rock, foundly, solid foundation. In short, does the church follow the leading of the Holy Spirit? When the angels announced the coming of Christ the Lord, they laid down a clear principle, the Savior and the perfecter of our faith is who has come. Is he your Savior this morning? And if so, is he the perfecter of your faith? I pray that this Christmas would be different. I pray that it would be different for all of us, that we would find our way to get on our knees before him and give him everything and ask him to live through us no matter what the price, no matter where it leads us that he would be glorified and that we would know that we're fitting cleanly into the path he's laid out before us. I pray that will be your Christmas this year. Let's pray. Father, as we come to you now in the reality of that great announcement that was given to the shepherds, Christ the Lord came that day, born in a manger, completely unassuming, but yet came to give us newness of life. I pray, Lord, that we would understand that nothing we can do can save us. It's all of your grace and your work in our lives. We are dead in sin and trespasses. We can't be made alive unless the Holy Spirit draws us. But once we know you as Savior, there is a life when we let you be Lord in our life that glorifies you. And I pray, Lord, that we as a church and as individuals would give you that glory that you deserve 
and put you before anything in our lives. And I praise you in advance for what you're going to do in the hearts of all of us today. And I give you the praise in Christ's blessed name. Amen. God bless.